You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Andrew Barden. Please turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. So this morning we'll be looking at the book of Hosea. As we see in the very first verse, the book was written by Hosea, the son of Biri, who was a prophet of God who ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Given this information, John MacArthur in his study Bible suggests a rough time period for Hosea's ministry are between 755 and 710 BC. The book of Hosea is primarily addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, And if you'd like to see the historical record of this time period, you can find it in 2 Kings chapters 14 through 17. It can essentially be summarized by saying that what you have is a series of kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see clearly in scripture that the lives of the people were no better. So it's against this background of gross national apostasy in the northern kingdom that Hosea ministered. Before we turn to our particular passage, let me give you a brief jet tour of the whole book to give you some context. Scholars seem to want to provide very elaborate, complex outlines for Hosea, but I prefer to keep things simple and see the book is essentially divided into four sections. In each section, broadly speaking, what you have is God bringing his charge against Israel. You then have a warning or a description of the wrath that's going to come upon them in judgment for their sin. And then a promise of future redemption and restoration based upon God's grace, mercy, and sovereign election of the nation. The purpose of the book of Hosea, therefore, is to warn of the coming wrath, to offer a final call to repentance, and to present this future promise from God. The nation as a whole was apostate and lost, but as always, God had his remnant. For the true believers among the Israelites, the book of Hosea would provide comfort and future hope as the cataclysm of judgment upon the wicked unfolded around them. Interestingly, our particular passage chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, while functioning as the third promise of future redemption, is structured in such a way that it features all three of these components in miniature. Let's read it, starting at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. 
My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So in the opening verse, we see God the Father speaking of his intimate relationship with Israel, the nation he calls his beloved son. This is a familiar verse because it's applied typologically to Christ in Matthew 2.15. I note this now and will return to it later to consider its significance. The statement, out of Egypt I called my son, refers, of course, to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. In those days, the nation was a mere child, an enslaved people without a land of their own. We read that the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Yet we read also that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The scriptures record for us how God delivered Israel from their slavery in Egypt by mighty signs and wonders and by the hand of Moses, his chosen servant to lead them. And why did God do this? Because of his love for his chosen people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Now, it's not because of anything in them that made them lovable to God. Scripture makes it very clear that they were a nation of idolaters who had long since rejected the true and living God to worship the idols of Egypt. It is simply then the unconditional election and love of God upon this chosen nation. Surely now then, with such a mighty demonstration of God's power and his love for them, the love of a father for his son, they would forsake their idols, repent and believe in the true and living God, enjoy in thankfulness, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Well, what does verse 2 say? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now, there's some debate here about how best to translate the Hebrew of this second verse. And there are basically two different options. One, as Dwayne Garrett proposes in his commentary, is to read this as they, Israel, called to them, Egypt. That is how they, Israel, went from them, Egypt. Meaning that in the Exodus itself, Israel was already committing apostasy by yearning for Egypt and carrying Egyptian paganism with them. That's a quote from Garrett's commentary. However, while it's not untrue that Israel was still unfaithful and idolatrous even as they were leaving Egypt, just take a look at 
some of the verses in the uh, Exodus narrative, for example. Um, the worship of the Baals, Canaanite gods, came in at a later period. Given the context, then, I think the ESV rendering, in line with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, works best. The more they were called, the more they went away. What Hosea is speaking of here, then, is that despite having the word of God revealed in the scriptures, and despite the ministry of prophets like himself, warning them and calling them to repentance, the call of God only served to harden Israel more and more in their sin and rebellion. The more they were called, the more they rejected God. Williams' Hebrew syntax states regarding the particular form of the Hebrew verbs here that they describe an activity that is done multiple times or to multiple objects and also a habitual, customary, and characteristic action on the part of Israel. Their apostasy and gross idolatry is continual and it's unrepentant. This is how they respond to the loving kindness mercy and tender care that God has shown to them. How often has that been true for us as well? How often have we hardened our hearts against the clear teaching of the word of God in the scriptures or ignored it entirely? The Bible is in itself a demonstration of God's grace and mercy to us. It is a precious and undeserved gift. But it's also a witness against us. Do you ever think of the Bible that way? As Israel was about to enter the promised land, Moses said to them, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? That's Deuteronomy 31, 26, and 27. It's very scary that there are many people, unsaved and in their sins, who own a copy of the Scriptures. There it is, sat on their bookshelf, gathering dust. They've never read it, never even look at it, and yet every day, there it is witnessing against them. Even for us as believers, this truth about Scripture should be very sobering. Let's continue with verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. God continues to present himself as the father of Israel. The name Ephraim functions here as elsewhere in Hosea, as representative of the whole nation. So when you see Ephraim, it means all Israel. The picture, is that, God, the picture that God is painting for us is clear and vivid, is it not? We again see his tender, gentle love and care for Israel as their father, while they were yet a small, helpless child, he took them by their arms and taught them to walk. And walk they did, out of the land of slavery and towards the land of promise, 
And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. They crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. They saw Pharaoh's army destroyed by the waters as he attempted to pursue them. What great signs God had done for them, demonstrating his power and his glory to them before their very eyes. Parched in the wilderness, God turned the bitter water at Marah into fresh, sweet water to quench their thirst. Then he charged them in Exodus 15:26, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. It is astounding then what we read in Hosea. They did not know that I healed them. That's staggering. They did not know. Even with God leading them out of Egypt, as it were, by the hand, they still did not truly know him. Their hard-hearted apostasy was shown clearly by the fact that even in the midst of all these great signs and wonders and with Moses up on the mountain speaking with God face to face, the people were engaged in carnal revelry, bowing down to a golden calf they had made, shouting, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. What lunacy is this? We may find it absurd, but in many ways... Haven't we also done exactly the same thing? Well, maybe not with a literal golden calf, but with some other idol. How often do we put our trust not in God, but in something else? How often, even after some blessing of providence, do we go right back to worrying and fretting about daily life? Let us not become proud and self-righteous as we read about Israel's sin, thinking we are better than they are. There, but for the grace of God, go all of us. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Here in verse 4, then, we see, again, God's tender love and care for Israel. But the imagery now shifts and the nation is pictured as a team of working oxen. The ESV rendering here, chords of kindness, is an interpretation which sees the meaning as God being humane and kind in his leading of Israel. Now, while God is, of course, perfect in his kindness to his chosen people, this is quite an extrapolation from the Hebrew, and I think it's better to simply render it literally, as does the NASB, which has cords of a man. Hosea is simply picturing God leading Israel as a farmer leads his oxen with ropes. But these are indeed bands of love. It is because of his great love that God is doing this to the praise of his glory. Not only does God lead Israel, but he's also removed the yoke from their jaws. They are freed from their burdensome yoke, symbolizing their slavery in Egypt. The gentle intimacy of God's care for them is pictured as he bends down to feed them. This, of course, is a reference to his miraculous provision of bread from heaven while they were in the wilderness. We read that now 
the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. And that's Exodus 16, verses 31 and 35, if you're interested. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. Alas, here in verse 5, we see again Israel's callous, hard-hearted rebellion against God. And this stands in stark contrast to God's gentle, loving care for the nation. Despite all that he did for them, they refused to repent of their sin and instead reveled in it more and more. They took the blessings he'd showered upon them and rather than give thanks to God from whom comes every good gift, they turned instead and worshipped idols, demonic false gods who bring nothing but ruin, disaster, and eternal punishment to all who serve them. Brethren, let us not underestimate the folly and depravity of fallen man. It deeply concerns me how few professing Christians today have even a semblance of a biblical worldview. If we view man as basically good or as morally neutral, we have a false and unbiblical understanding of man. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Each of us, from the moment of our conception, carries the stain and curse of original sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And sin affects every single part of our being, heart, mind, and will, body, and soul. This is the doctrine of total depravity, and it's why, without a sovereign act of God, no one could be saved. Though Israel was and is an elect nation, not every individual Israelite was saved. Indeed, looking at the history of Israel, it seems that most were not. Even within the elect nation, true believers were always a minority, a remnant called by God. Hosea warns that because Israel as a nation refused to repent, they faced national destruction and exile, the wrath of God against them because of their sin. Now this will not be a return to slavery in Egypt, but this time it is Assyria that is being raised up by God as the human agent of his wrath. Some note an apparent contradiction here between this verse and, for example, 9.3, which says that Israel shall return to Egypt. So what's happening here? Well, this apparent contradiction disappears when we recognize that what is being said in such verses is that Israel is going to be brought back to the condition they were in in Egypt, that is, in bondage and without a land of their own. But what we have here in 11.5 is a description of what is literally about to happen. They're about to be conquered and carried into exile, not by the Egyptians, but by the Assyrians. Incidentally, history shows that the Assyrians went on to conquer Egypt. So any Israelites who did manage to flee there in the false hope of escape 
did not in fact escape at all. Please understand, there is no escape from the wrath of God except by the means of salvation he himself has provided. That is, by repentance and faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and as Lord. As it is written in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. In verse 6, Hosea now uses vivid imagery to describe the judgment that is about to come upon unrepentant Israel. The sword here represents the entire Assyrian military machine which is soon to descend upon the apostate nation. It's personified in striking terms as whirling or dancing, consuming and eating its way through their land and their people. This is a picture of complete national destruction, but it is not ultimately the Assyrians who are coming against Israel. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Hosea's ministry overlaps with that of another prophet, Isaiah. Listen to what the Lord says through Isaiah, chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the, pe the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So the Assyrians, from their perspective, are simply following the evil and bloodthirsty desires of their own hearts. God holds them accountable for their wickedness, and he pronounces woes and judgment upon them. Yet this is a great mystery, that at the same time, God himself is the one who has allowed them to become a great and fearsome nation. He has raised them up as an instrument of his wrath upon Israel. God is on the throne. God is in control. What a clear picture this is of both God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility. When we speak of God's sovereignty, we mean that not even one single atom in this universe is rogue. While God is not the author of evil, according to his sovereign decree, he allows evil to exist, and he uses it for his own sovereign purposes, both for his glory and for the good of his elect. For true believers throughout the ages, just as for us today, the promise of Scripture holds true. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You'll note there's no exception clauses there. All things. I must make one final point here from verse 6. The Hebrew word translated bars of their gates in the ESV could also be rendered as false prophets, as does the NIV, the NRSV, and the new updated NASB. And if correct, this gives an even more graphic picture 
of what is about to take place. The sword of God's wrath will consume Israel's false prophets. Well, who are these false prophets? Well, they could be prophets of demonic idols like Baal, but they could also be the sorts of individuals that opposed Jeremiah during his ministry to Judah, which took place around a century later. While Jeremiah was warning Judah that the wrath of God was about to come upon them because of their wickedness, these false prophets rose up, telling the people not to listen to him. All would be well with them. They were blessed. They would have health, wealth, prosperity. They prophesied peace, peace, when there was no peace. These individuals claimed to be prophets of the true and living God, but they were not. Yet it was the false prophets who the people wanted to hear. They rejected the true word of God and exchanged it for a lie. The consequence of such apostasy would be severe, and the sword was about to devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. You'll note here in the ESV that it says that Israel are bent on turning away from God. Well, the Hebrew, Hebrew verb here can perhaps be better if a little more awkwardly translated as are being hung up. This is a passive verb form. The ESV rendering are bent on, while true as a result, is active on the part of Israel. So I feel it misses the weight of what is being said here. Israel are ultimately passive in this process. What God is saying is that because of their unrepentant apostasy, he has given them over to their sins. He has hung them up, as it were, for apostasy. This then aids our understanding of the following part of the verse. God has given Israel over to their sins as part of his judgment upon them. Even if they do call out to him, they do so not from the heart, they merely cry out wanting relief from the temporal effects of his wrath. This is not repentance. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 10, this is a worldly sorrow, and this leads only to death. So what did happen to Israel historically? Well, exactly what Hosea prophesied would happen, as we read in 2 Kings 17, verses 1 to 8. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison, then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. 
You see, God keeps his promises. One difficulty with making direct application here from the Old Testament to the church today is that we're not a part of God's covenant nation, and so we're not facing a literal exile from a promised land. Yet we do have much in common with the true believing remnant of Israel who were alive in the time of Hosea. We, like they, are living in a time where God's wrath is increasingly being poured out upon wicked men and wicked nations worldwide. This is evidenced all around us, is it not? The blessings we've enjoyed and, to our shame, taken for granted on account of the elements of the biblical worldview that have permeated Western culture for centuries are being stripped away. We see in Canada, for example, faithful pastors like James Coates and Tim Stevens being persecuted and imprisoned for simply gathering the church to worship God. Wickedness, perversion, and idolatry are exalted and celebrated in society, while everything that is good and true is despised and torn down. As Isaiah warns, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Realize, brethren, that what we see around us taking place in society is not going to bring the wrath of God. It is the wrath of God. A key passage for understanding the days in which we live is Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. I won't read it now, but I'd encourage you all to study it well. In his commentary on these verses, R.C. Sproul writes, three times in this section we read about human beings being given up by God. They are given up to their vile passions, the lust of the flesh, and their reprobate minds. When God judges people according to the standard of his righteousness, he is declaring that he will not strive with mankind forever. The Bible makes very clear that there is a limit to God's mercy. There is a limit to his grace, and he is determined not to pour out his mercy on impenitent people forever. There is a time when God stops being gracious with people and he gives them over to their sin. The worst thing that can happen to sinners is to be allowed to go on sinning without any divine restraints. God gives people over to what they want. He abandons them to their sinful impulses and removes his restraints. God, in dispensing his just judgment, abandons the impenitent sinner forever. Romans 1, 18-32 well describes the past 70 or so years of history. Though, I would argue that the decline began long before then. Writing in the early 1870s, at the height of the British Empire's power, the future Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, wrote the following warning. He said, In what manner God would punish England if English governments cast off all connection with religion, I cannot tell. Whether he would punish us by some sudden blow, such as defeat in war, or the occupation of our territory by a foreign power, whether he would waste us away gradually and slowly by placing a worm at the roots of our commercial prosperity, whether he would break us in pieces by letting fools rule over us and allowing parliaments to obey them, and permitting us, like the Midianites, to destroy one another, whether he would ruin us by sending a dearth of wise statesmen in the upper ranks 
and giving the reins of power to communists, socialists, and mob leaders. All these are points which I have no prophetical eye to see, and I do not pretend to determine. But of one thing I am very sure. The state that begins by sowing the seed of national neglect of God will sooner or later reap a harvest of national disaster and national ruin. That's pretty much what came to pass in Britain. Ryle made no claim to be a prophet. He was simply applying biblical principles and recognizing that all world governments are not just appointed by God, they're also accountable to him. It was only by the sovereign grace of God that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was granted repentance and the wisdom to know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. Now, there's nothing political about what I'm saying here, and there's no political solution to the growing darkness of this present evil age. I'm not here to offer a political solution. I have one message and one message alone to this world and to political leaders today. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Brethren, we need to be praying that if it be the Lord's will, our rulers will be granted repentance and faith to believe the gospel because it is the only thing that will stop the rot. Remember what I said earlier about the scriptures acting as a witness against us. Jesus said that it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities that rejected him during his earthly ministry. What then of the society we find ourselves in today, which is descending to such depths of wickedness while at the same time having far more and far easier access to the word of God than any other society in human history? Serious question. As Paul exhorts us, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. While we must pray such prayers, though, we also need to give heed to the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Paul also writes that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 13. As we see the world around us growing darker, and as men are increasingly given over to their sins in judgment, this will affect us, and it's already affecting us. We have seen what is happening with Pastors Coates and Stevens, and we're likely to see much more of that taking place, because the reality is that as wicked men are driven by their sin to ever deeper hatred of God, so also they are driven to deeper hatred of us as God's chosen people. Yet beyond the external threats, there's perhaps an even greater danger that we're facing, especially in such times, and that's the internal threat of impostors, as Paul calls them. Well, who are these? Well, these are false teachers, men who claim to be Christian pastors and teachers, yet who in reality are servants of Satan. They are impostors, and they are leading many astray, just like the false prophets in ancient Israel. Many of them, like those false prophets, cry, peace, peace, 
when there is no peace? Because how can there be peace for a world that is at war with God? Such false teachers give false assurance to false believers who are still dead in their sins, tickling their itching ears with promises of your best life now. They present a God who loves them just as they are and whose purpose is to fulfill their personal dream destiny. And crowds flock to them. Paul writes of a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We live in precisely such a time. The multiplying of false teachers is another aspect of God's wrath. For in his judicial abandonment of people to their sins, he gives people what they want. And not all false teachers are obvious either. Many of them are cunning and devious, those who creep in unawares and secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is why it is vitally important for us all to be Bereans and test everything, I mean everything, that we read or hear against the teaching of the scriptures to see if these things are so. Now I expect you to do that with what I'm saying today. Don't just accept what I'm saying uncritically. Test it against the scriptures. We cannot afford to let down our guard because our Lord warns us False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, the elect will not be deceived, but it's only by the grace of God that, when, uh, that we will not be. We have nothing to boast about. As pressure and persecution increases in a society increasingly under the wrath of God, the temptation will also increase to deny Christ before men. Sadly, we've seen much evidence of this taking place in our own time. Now, it occurs not just in terms of people overtly apostatizing and walking away from the faith, but also in terms of compromise, which is still apostasy, but a much more subtle form of it. I think many of us know of teachers who perhaps we once looked to as solid, um, but who now, in recent years, they've begun preaching a different gospel, whether by addition or by subtraction. They're going on from bad to worse, and many are now overtly opposing the true church and siding with the world. In a recent interview, Pastor Stevens spoke about how many so-called pastors in Canada are busy writing articles attacking him and Pastor Coates and writing about how is, what is happening is not persecution. Meanwhile, he's received letters from Christian brothers and sisters in China, Iran, and North Korea, writing that they are praying for the persecuted church in Canada. There is something terribly wrong with the visible church here in the West, and it's being brought into sharp focus for us. Now, while this can be very troubling, we are warned about this sort of thing in Scripture. And we must take comfort again in the sovereignty of God. We, we can take comfort. We don't have to be distressed to despair by these things, even if they are discouraging. In reality, what is happening is that God is using the current circumstances to expose what's been there all along. 
he is revealing where people truly stand and who are truly his disciples. And this in itself is a blessing. It is the grace and mercy of God to his church because such impostors, if they remain hidden, can do great damage. As we return then to the closing third of our passage, we might think, given what's been said so far, that it's all over for Israel. Because of their utter apostasy, their hard-hearted refusal to repent, and their being given over in judgment by God to their sins, surely there's no hope. Yet, as we begin verse 8, suddenly the tone changes. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So we have here two rhetorical questions to begin with, addressed from God to Israel through the prophet Hosea. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? In fact, if I understand correctly, the first two couplets of this verse could be translated slightly differently as a rhetorical question followed by a statement of fact in response. So, how can I give you over, Ephraim? I will deliver you, Israel. The point is clear. They have been given over to his wrath, yes, but not to full, final destruction. Israel will not be wiped out completely. In the end, the nation will be delivered. Two more rhetorical questions present the same truth in a different form. How can I make you like Admar or like Zeboim? These two cities may be unfamiliar to you, but if you check in Deuteronomy 29 23, for example, you will see that these were destroyed by God along with Sodom and Gomorrah because they shared the wickedness, the wickedness of those two more famous cities. These cities then stand as a warning throughout history to the furious wrath of God upon sin. They were cities utterly and completely wiped out for all of time with no hope of future restoration. But Israel will not be made like them. God, because of his love and compassion, he explains these have become warm and tender towards Israel. It's important to rightly understand what's happening here. This in no way contradicts God's immutability. That's his unchanging nature. While his love and his tender compassion are certainly real, God is not changing his mind. He is speaking in language which helps us to understand his thoughts and intentions. He writes in human terms, as if self-questioning and agonizing over his decisions as we might, though he has in reality foreordained all that's going to take place by his sovereign decree. How all this works together, I'm not going to pretend to understand. Um, but what is clear is that we see again the compassion and love of the father grieving over his rebellious son Israel. Despite all that they have done, despite the wrath that he will surely pour out upon them, just as he has declared, his love and his sovereign plan for his chosen nation continues unchanged. We behold then the grace and the mercy of our God. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
Here in verse 9, God reiterates his promise that he will not utterly destroy Israel. He will not give effect to his burning anger. He will demonstrate his great mercy on his chosen nation because he is God and not man. Unlike finite, sinful men, God is perfect in grace and mercy and perfect in long-suffering and patience with his sinful people. Furthermore, the sin of man cannot thwart his sovereign election or cancel his promises. God is holy in the midst of the nation of Israel. He is not like they are. There's debate about how to translate the final word of this verse. For example, the ESV and the NASB render this, I will not come in wrath, whereas the King James has, I will not enter into the city. And the NIV goes with, I will not come against their cities. While the translation in wrath might seem the better option in context, upon consideration I favor the second option, into the city. However, in a sense, both renderings are correct. What is being promised here links back to verse 6. God will not again enter into the cities of Israel in wrath to rage, consume, and devour them. The promise is for a future time of salvation. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. As our passage then draws to a close, we return to the theme of Exodus. While terrible wrath is about to fall upon Israel and they're about to be carried into exile from the land of promise, Hosea prophesied a future time when there will be a new exodus. Israel will return from the lands where they have been scattered, once again following the Lord to the promised land. A simile is used here, which is a figure of speech that, as Duval and Hayes explain, makes comparison by using the words like or as to explicitly state that one thing resembles another. God will roar like a lion. And because of his roar, the sons of the sea, as is literally translated, will surely tremble. The phrase sons of the sea in the Hebrew is paraphrased out of existence in the ESV. And this is a shame because Hosea is using powerful imagery here to describe just how far Israel will be scattered during their exile. They will be, and history shows have been, scattered to the four corners of the earth. Though these events are yet future, even from our perspective, they will surely take place because God has declared it. God has spoken. The lion of the tribe of Judah shall roar, and all Israel will tremble. The whole nation, that is, a future elect generation of Israelites who are by grace granted repentance and faith, will be filled with the fear of the Lord and fully and finally saved from all their sin, from their apostasy, and their idolatry. This is something the Old Testament is full of this kind of prophecy that this is going to take place. In Hosea chapter 7, Israel is described as like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. But when the lion roars and the effectual call of the Holy Spirit melts their hearts and they are brought to repentance and faith in the fear of the Lord, they will cease their folly and sin. Hosea uses similes again here. The exiles of Israel will tremble like a bird and 
like a dove, but this time they will come out from, the, from Egypt and Assyria. God will regather Israel into the promised land and will cause them to dwell in their own houses forevermore. Note here that nothing has changed on their part. It doesn't say the nation of Israel finally repents and so God relents. This is entirely a sovereign act of God that's in view here. Even though for the past 2,000 years of history, the nation of Israel has languished in utter apostasy, having rejected their Messiah, this does not render void the unconditional promises God gave to them as a nation. Even if the vast majority of individuals in the nation have perished in sin and unbelief, for they are not saved just by their ethnicity, the scripture remains clear. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, Romans 11:29. Hosea, two and a half millennia ago, prophesied it very clearly. This is verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear, of, in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So how does this all relate to us? Well, isn't it true that we, like they, have been saved from the wrath of God only by sovereign grace through faith? We did nothing to earn or deserve our salvation. Quite the opposite, in fact. All of us were at one time dead in trespasses and sins, enemies of God and under his wrath. Yet God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and dwelt among us, here in this cursed and fallen world. While Israel was the wicked, disobedient, sinful son, Christ was the perfect, obedient, sinless son with whom the Father was well pleased. Now this is what Matthew is showing in his application of the first verse of this passage to Christ. Out of Egypt I called my son. He is saying that Christ is the perfect son. Christ was spotless, without blemish. Yet though he was perfect, he was despised and rejected by men who put him to death on a Roman cross. All this occurred precisely according to God's sovereign decree. Christ came willingly and laid his life down as a penal substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of all who would ever believe, all of God's elect, for all of time. We must grasp this. As Christ was hanging there on the cross in agony, under the full weight of the wrath of God on our behalf, it was literally and actually our sin which he was bearing. When you read the accounts of the crucifixion, that is our actual atonement. It is for each of us that he suffers there, for everyone who will ever believe individually. Our sin was imputed to him. It was an actual atonement on our behalf. He died and on the third day rose again so that in him we likewise, by grace through faith, might also be raised to newness of life. We receive imputed to us his perfect spotless righteousness 
Though we could never by our own works earn salvation, he fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf so that through him we might become the righteousness of God himself. We are declared righteous by God. Do we deserve this? (laughs) Not at all. There is nothing in us that made us somehow worthy of God's grace and mercy. It was simply by his sovereign election, by his great love for us. As it is written in that beautiful first chapter of Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We're a chosen people, saved by grace through faith alone. Regeneration, repentance, faith, all these are gifts and work of God, works of God within us. We have nothing to boast about. Salvation belongs to God alone. Well, perhaps you're listening this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Perhaps by some appointment of providence you are listening at some other time or in some other place. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is bound by neither space nor time. I pray that the word will penetrate into the very heart of your being and might, by the workings of the Holy Spirit of God, become in you a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. I give you a promise and I give you a warning. The promise that though each of us is by nature a wicked sinner, deserving only the wrath of God, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ, the Son, gave his life on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in the place of all who would repent and believe. He died, was buried, rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but hear now the warning. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You are still in your sin, and the wrath of God burns hot against the wicked. So repent, therefore, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of eternal life. For those of us who are Christians here today, as we find ourselves as strangers and aliens in a rapidly disintegrating and darkening world, surrounded by such evil and such chaos, where do we find our hope? We find it in exactly the same place as did the faithful remnant in Hosea's time, in the word and in the promises of God. Reading from Hebrews 10. 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and for more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.